I invite you to turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 14. We've been having a great time going through um, expository journey in Matthew's gospel. And message that was encouraging to my heart and to our people, and I pray would be to you as well. And uh, no pressure, but part two is tonight at Everglen at 6 p.m. So I know driving to the northern suburbs for you in Cape Town is like crossing the Atlantic. But uh, anyway, you would be most welcome and uh, wanted to uh, do something that would be different tonight, but perhaps uh, related and an encouragement to you. But I entitled this message in Matthew 14. We're going to look at verses 22 through 27, though I'll read the whole text, but would only plan, Lord willing, to cover verses 28 through 36 tonight. This morning, verse 22 through 27. I've entitled it King of the Chaos, King of the Chaos. If you uh, know Matthew, it's back in chapter 8 that we already see Jesus' authority over the sea, his lordship, his dominion over all the stormy waters of life, ending with that climactic question, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? But now I want you to notice it's not only Jesus' word, it's his entire person ruling the sea. It's not just him speaking to command the mighty waves. It's, it's Jesus, not inside the boat, but now outside the boat, walking on the water. A miracle that elevates his kingship to another level. It uh, demonstrates his messiahship. It proves his deity. You tell me, friends, what is one of the best words to describe the craziness of our world today? from volatile economies to uncertain markets to upcoming elections in this country or in the U.S., to ongoing war in the Ukraine and never-ending coups across Africa, uh, a rising China boasting bricks. How tragic all the more to know that Iran joined this shameful society that our land here in South Africa is a part of with the bricks and now the invasion of Israel just yesterday and the apparent war breaking out there in the Middle East. We have devastating fires and floods and earthquakes in various places. The bad news bombards us daily. Can you think of a better word that sums it up than the word chaos? Chaos. Not to mention we live here in South Africa, a nation ruled by greedy thieves being brought to its knee by, knees by corruption and socialism. And that's just at the macro level. I'm sure each of you could stand up and testify at the personal micro level in your own life. Your world, your circumstances, your relationships, your trials, your, your health, your past, your, your present, your future, your emotions, your, your fears, your anxieties at times. The word chaos probably comes from your lips on occasion, I'm guessing, even though I don't know you. And then you add, not only at the macro and the micro, but at the ecclesiastical level, you could say, in the local church and in the broader church, in faithful congregations. We are the church militants, as we say in theology, obeying our captain's great commission, marching into enemy territory, occupying uh, 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 satanic realms in the work of the gospel, right? Advancing his kingdom in the minefield of this evil age, a lost, a darkened, a a, a, a sin-cursed, a perishing world that Christ has called us to take his word into, and it's filled with chaos, once again, where Jesus' disciples were headed into as well. When we come, as we're about to read this text, the apostles, the soon-to-be founders of his church, as the book of Acts will show us, so Jesus is preparing, he's mentoring them, equipping us as well. 
And if you know your Old Testament, what's one of the favorite Old Testament pictures for this fallen and evil and uh, chaotic world under the power of Satan? It's the image of the sea, right? The roaring waves, the bottomless ocean, powerful, uncontrollable, deadly, the, the terrifying abyss. Guess where we get our English word chaos from? The Greek word chaos, which was for abyss. So when God wanted to teach his people about his absolute sovereignty over life, his dominion over all things, even sin and wickedness, his providence, as we say, reigning over the worst disasters and the most chaotic crises, how did God love to convey this? By declaring that he ruled the sea. By showing himself as king over the ocean. By proving he was the lord of the chaos. One of the most graphic, vivid, and demonstrative ways God could convey his omnipotent protection of his people is through showing himself as the Lord of the watchers. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. What did Moses and Miriam sing afterwards in Exodus 15? I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Isaiah 51. Was it not you, Yahweh, you, Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Uh, Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You think it's any accident then that Jesus chose the Sea of Galilee as his perfect classroom. One of his favorite object lessons for his 12 pupils, his devoted followers, the disciples. Let's read the text. Matthew 14 from verse 22. Immediately, he's just fed the 5,000. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. The boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Be not afraid. Peter said to him, we'll look at this text tonight. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Verse 33, the point, the climax, the theme, the, the, the purpose of this whole miracle and this whole story and account. Verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, Jesus, saying, you are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. Our Lord, we... Thank you for such a truly yet another awesome day in the life and ministry of our almighty Lord. A, a, a miracle that displays so vividly 
for us in living color, both your majesty, Lord Jesus, and our frailty, your ability and adequacy in the face of our inability and our inadequacy, your sufficiency in the face of our weakness and insufficiency. Pray that you would minister to each of my brothers and sisters here, each of the hearers, some who may not even know you, that they would be converted, they would come to encounter you as the Lord of the waters, the King of the chaos. Whatever they are going through, whatever we face in this world, whatever whatever is waiting for this dear church, Living Hope Bible Church, in the coming days, we pray that we might, as the disciples did on that day, and even more so, this side of Calvary, this side of Pentecost, we would worship you, proclaim, surely you are the Son of God. All is well, as Jesus reigns. His sovereign name we pray. Amen. I'm glad to see all the families here. I encourage kids, as we've trained our kids, to take good notes from the sermon, draw pictures. This is a fun one to draw pictures with, right, kids? And uh, I look forward. I'd love to see some of those afterwards, even at the door, or uh, maybe we can find a prize for the best uh, uh, picture of uh, Jesus, Lord of, of the waters, right? These are staunch Jewish monotheists. There's only one God, right? And yet they declare at the end of this event, verse 33, as we'll look at more tonight, he, God, has a son, and his name is Jesus. Heaven has declared the sonship, the deity of Jesus at his baptism already in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 8 and elsewhere, hell declares the sonship of Jesus. But for the very first time, someone on earth gets it. Only in the 14th chapter of Matthew, the disciples now declare, surely this is the Son of God. Our outline this morning, friends, is, well, this day. Uh, I'll try not to rub it in too much if you're not able to join us tonight. I am um, bringing seven assurances in total. And we'll look at the first three this morning. Assurances so that you will worship and trust Jesus as Son of God, as King of the chaos, as Lord of the storm. I was helped with some of these, some of this outline from Warren Wearsby. Seven assurances. We'll look at three this morning. First of all, he brought me here, and then he is praying for me, and then he will come to me. He brought me here, he's praying for me, he will come to me. Let's look at the first one. Verse 22, he brought me here. Look at the text. Notice the tone of urgency here. It sounds a little more like Mark than Matthew for a moment, doesn't it? Immediately, verse 22 says, at once, without delay. And then look at the verb, the action word that is used there. He, they are, he, he makes them, he compels, he constrains them, you could translate it. It's a, it's a muscular, strong sort of Greek word. He forces and requires the disciples to do it. And then look what he does to the crowd. Verse 22 concludes, he sends the crowds away. And, and verse 23, in case you missed it, he sent the crowds away. And you wonder, Jesus, why are you spoiling the party? You just fed the 5,000 plus. Why such a sudden departure? But if you know the Gospels, you know the reason, don't you? Remember the Messianic expectations and the Galilean flag-waving Jewish, Roman-hating patriotism? John chapter 6 is the parallel, and we read in John 6, perceiving they were intending to come and take Jesus by force and to make him king, he withdrew. Right? 
He had to put out the fires. He had to put a wet blanket on their political, earthly uh, hopes of liberation, right? They had just seen Jesus on the hillside in Moses-like fashion, grouping people together in in tens and fifties, right? Feeding the 5,000 with his manna from heaven out of a mere uh, five loaves and two fish. Now was the time in their minds to seize the liberator, launch the coup, and kick the backsides of the Romans, right? Why wait? Act now! But Jesus saw through them with x-ray vision, did he not? The The sovereign gaze of the Son of God penetrated their hearts. He would not be manipulated, like Satan tried in the wilderness, right? He would not be rushed into a premature kingdom or any agenda other than the Father's predetermined plan. My hour has not yet come. The Lion of Judah tames their messianic uproar without any sound system. Don't you love this? No microphone, no loudspeakers necessary. He dismisses the crowd of probably 20,000, 30,000 plus. Mark adds, he bid them farewell. Isn't that amazing? I love to picture this. He's looking out on a crowd of 20,000, 30,000. scenes. Au revoir. Cheers. I'm sure he didn't use that other Afghan's word that you're not supposed to use. But anyway, he told them to get lost. <laughs> right? He sends the disciples on ahead. Under these circumstances, Jesus did not want his disciples swept up by this contagious, politically charged atmosphere. One of them was named Simon the Zealot, and the other was greedy Judas, remember? Think, put yourself in their sandals, though. How puzzled they must have been. Jesus, uh, he, he didn't even tell them why he was doing it. He didn't explain that he wanted to go pray. The, the last they heard, he wanted to get away with them. And now he's trying to get away from them. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Lord, I don't understand. Your will puzzles me. Your plans confuse me. Uh, your, your agenda seems unreasonable. But he does know what is best for us in the long run and what will bring him most glory, right? Remember, the disciples are probably on a spiritual high, successful ministry tour, if you know back in Matthew 10, capped off with the spectacular feeding of the thousands. Jesus knew their hearts needed to be purified. Their expectations needed to be ripened. Their hopes needed to mature. Their faith needed to be strengthened. They needed to be prepared for suffering for the way of the cross, for the birth of the church, not for the triumph of your political agenda. They needed the school of suffering. They needed the refiner's fire of affliction. We're going to talk a little more tonight how the prosperity gospel is ravaging the church when we serve, when we proclaim an adversity gospel, which, which nobody wants to hear anymore. Walking on water is a favorite of the health, wealth, prosperity heretics. But for disciples of Jesus, next time God sends you straight into the storm, remember this moment. Remember that, that faith is trusting my Lord knows what's best for me. However abrupt, however unreasonable, however perplexing, he brought me here. I can trust him, right? Number two. We saw verse 22, he brought me here. Now, verse 23 and 24, he is praying for me. He is praying for me. This gets even better and so deeply encouraging and such a rich comfort for my own soul, and I pray it will be for yours as well. Verse 23 and 24, the second assurance here. He is praying for me. Keep reading, verse 23. After Jesus had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, 
He was there alone, probably the mighty Mount Arbel. Lauren and I were with a tour group just a few months ago, all over on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, a place I've stood many times and taught and sung and prayed on our Shepherd Seminary uh, study tours, rich with significance. Jesus seemed to live at times from one crisis to the next. And I think falsely we have this deficient Christology that sees Jesus as having sort of uh, automatic fuel injections, some sort of instant strength reserves, you know, forgetting that in his humanity, he needed prayer. He leaned hard upon his heavenly father through prayer. He had to rely upon the same tool available to you and me and to our churches today, right? Pouring our hearts to heaven. I kind of picture Jesus here standing like Moses praying for the Israelites in their battle against the Amalekites, except this time there was no Aaron or her to uphold his arms, right? If the perfect Son of God needed prayer, how much more? You and me, right? Each time the gospel shows Jesus praying, it's at some critical point in his ministry. It's often at night. It's often in a lonely place. It's often related to the disciples, his, his, his church-to-be, misunderstanding his mission. And so as Jesus goes up this nearby mountain, what do you think our Lord prayed about? In the context, we can think he was probably reaffirming to his father the call of his son to serve and die, not be a freedom fighter against Rome. Imagine the intensity of his spiritual battle. We think of his temptation in the wilderness. Satan urging him to claim his kingdom now, bypass the cross. Striking to me that all the Christian schools in Johannesburg were are run by charismatics. They were birthed in the 80s, and they all have some name, king, or kingdom in it. Interesting, huh? How theology has so shaped thinking. Uh, Satan was back for another round for temptation, it seems. And Jesus flees to the mountain. He prays earnestly, pours out his heart to his Father. No one understood him. The crowds, his disciples, not even his own family, if you look back in chapter 13, his own hometown, Nazareth, he must have prayed, too, for his vulnerable disciples. They're headed into a stormy night of trials. Later on, his words to Peter come to mind, don't they? Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. that Your faith may not fail. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. My Christian brothers and sisters, are we following our Lord's private, a pattern of private prayer, his fervent devotion to wrestling in prayer we live such distracted lives don't we it's so much easier to pick up my phone than to kneel in prayer are we like paul who told the romans i'm in romans 15 i'm wrestling in prayer for you it's uh he commended epaphras in colossians 4 for wrestling in prayer for the saints there we think of jacob at the river penile right uh, jabok where he received his wound because he met god in all-night prayer session do we travel on our knees as we ought? Do we need to return to more regular habits of private prayer? I was reading about the Andrew Murray revival in the 1860s here in the Cape and how he had prayed every Friday night for an hour for his dad, right? For 38 years. And probably all of us are reaping still some benefits from that because he pled with God over in Wellington or Worcester for decades. Matthew's camera shifts now from Christ to the disciples. Look at verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You ever noticed in the Gospels, before the, the Spirit comes at Pentecost, whenever the twelve are separated from Jesus, it's usually trouble. 
Notice it says literally they were buffeted, battered by the waves. John adds in John 6, there was a strong or a great wind blowing. Uh, Matthew says here, the wind was contrary. It was adverse. Again, are we ready for an adversity gospel in a world that's drowning in a false prosperity gospel? Mark adds further, what happens when the boat is hammered? So are the the rowers, right? Jesus sees them. Uh, uh, Mark 4 tells us, straining, uh, Mark 6, straining at the oars. I like the old King James. Toiling in the rowing. ESV, making headway painfully. Unlike the week you've had, the year you've had, the life you've had. Straining at the oars, battered by the waves, and you thought God's word could not relate to your pain. Mark, in his account, Mark 6, uh, uh, specifically says, or literally, they were tormented, they were tortured in the rowing. It's a Greek word for vexed or pained, both by mental and physical distress and strain. A harsh wind that probably confirmed all their frustrations and all... all of their uh, uh, disappointment with Jesus' abrupt change of plans. You can just picture burly Peter, can't you, with his soggy beard, flying in the wind, shouting out orders, barking his commands to these exhausted disciples. Paul, Paul, faster, boys, faster. My great-grandma could do better than that. Harder to the right. No, no, harder to the left. Come on, you loafers. Stop lagging behind. I've seen pensioners row harder. We're getting nowhere. John adds that Passover was near. may have been a full Passover moon overhead. may have allowed Jesus to see all the way out to where the disciples were struggling or in his sovereign supernatural sight. He saw the battered boatmen. Why, we ask, why did Jesus not go immediately to rescue them? It doesn't say. Have we not all wondered at times? How long, O Lord? Why? Why do you seem to delay when I, can you not tell I'm straining at the oars? God of heaven, hear our cry. I mean, how many psalms could we turn to right now? Have mercy, Lord. Don't you care? Don't you see? How long? We don't know all of his reasons, but we know enough, do we not? We have a theology of suffering. We have his explanation of his purpose in our trials. If we would take time to study and meditate and to believe and understand it and remind one another of it, biblical counselors, we talked about Earlier this morning, Romans 5, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that trials, tribulations bring about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. Romans 8, we know he's sovereignly working all things together for the good of, not a blank check for everyone, as we'll talk about tonight, who wants to just, you know, use Jesus as a genie in the bottle, for those who love him, right? Who are called according to his purpose, that we might be conformed to the image of his son, right? to grow us in Christ-likeness. James 1, my associate pastor, Robin Brown, preached on this last Sunday night. Powerful message. Consider pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. One of my fellow elders in our church at Antioch had to have a kidney removed. And he's still recovering. He's only a few years older than me, early 50s. And uh, it's a, you know, it could have killed him, the kidney cancer. Praise the Lord, the cancer is out because the kidney is out. And uh, most people would be, you know, licking their wounds and looking for self-pity. And he's, you know, it's, it's a massive operation. It's a long recovery. 
I can't get a complaint out of him. All he says is like, I've never done so much counseling. I set the appointments. I pick the visitors. I'm working through the whole church. Here's how this person's doing. Hey, you, if you guys could follow up on so-and-so, here's an update on their marriage. Here's how brother so-and-so is doing. Sister so-and-so. It's just, I'm going to use my, my month off to minister. God took my kidney and gave me a more ministry opportunities than I've ever had. He can have the kidney. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that example, right? Got another brother who's waiting in the government hospital in Letatong, the West Rand, in our church, waiting for uh, a biopsy and probably, a, a, I think, a, some other organ to be removed. I'm not very good with the details, but <laughs> some part of his body, I think it's his uh, appendix. And uh, witnessing and just seeing the Lord use those trials to open up gospel opportunities. And, and notice the disciples are... Uh, um, Suffering because they obeyed him. Lord, we're just doing what you said. You told us to get in the boat and you, you sent us. Have you ever felt that way? Lord, I, I got saved. I got baptized. I joined the church. I, I started new habits. I, I, got, uh, I got married to a fellow believer. I, I, we adopted orphans. We went into missions. We're planting a church. And all we get is more trouble and toil? I, that's not what I signed up for, Lord. What a great comfort, isn't it? To know that Christ sees you straining at the oars. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing catches him off guard, off duty. Never will we be beyond his reach. Never will we be out of his sight. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I, I cannot abandon you. You are my own. You may lose sight of me. I have not lost sight of you. <laughs> he fed the 5,000. He looked with compassion on the crowds back in verse 14. He was physically moved by their plight. We can be sure even more. He is merciful. He is tenderhearted toward his own. He doesn't just see and care. Best of all, he prays for us. Look back at verse 23. He was there. It was night. He was alone. And he was praying. Romans 8 comes to mind, doesn't it? Both God the Holy Spirit and God the Son interceding for us, right? We had the privilege of having the hymn writer Chris Anderson at our church last month. And uh, I was away for weekend ministry on the weekend, but had the privilege of taking him to the airport um, the following day and just sharing our burdens as fellow brothers in Christ and fellow pastors. And he, he you know, prayed such an encouraging prayer for me there in O.R. Tumbo at the Mug and Bean. And uh, I came away thinking, wow, what an encouragement. And I thought, that's just Chris Anderson. I have the risen Lord Jesus Christ perpetually, permanently, always praying for me. That's a million times better. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What does Jesus live for? To pray for you, Christian. The very Son of God, the Father's right hand, interceding for you, for me, for us. You want to know what he prays for? Go home this afternoon or talk about it in your small groups this week or around your table. Or in the car, John 17, praying for purity, praying for unity, praying for protection, praying for evangelism. He sees you straining at the oars. He knows your distress, and he will pray you through it. We sing about that, don't we? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How he watches o'er his loved ones, died to make them all his own. How for them he's interceding, pleading now before his throne, before the throne. Number three, he brought me here. He's praying for me. Third and finally this morning, verse 25 to 27, he will come to me. He will come to me. Look at this. 
climactic comfort here. Verse 25. And in the... Oh, Lord, I'm sure it's going to be the first watch. Okay, maybe. The, okay, okay, Lord. I'll settle for the third. No, no, no. <laughs> in the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 a.m. That's seven or eight hours after he sent them on a trip that normally takes about an hour or two. Eish. Right, as we say, if you can't say eish or amen, say ena. <laughs> how spent, how miserable they must have been. How drained and exhausted. Kind of like the uh, uh, rugby team's defensive first line, right? I, I think I'll, I'll choose the Irish as the examples <laughs> for now. Imagine 75th minute of the game, some 15, 18, 20 phases in a row, holding off the opponent. You're better, you're beaten, but you prevented the try. You've been faithful. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. This has to be one of the most dramatic understatements in all of Scripture. It's just written in this matter-of-fact sort of a way. Yeah. He came to them walking on the sea. Do, 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 do. There he is. Yep. Just... Out for a stroll. <laughs> when the, the day the sovereign son of God waltzed across the water. <laughs> I mean, you wonder, did he even get wet? Did he pave his own smooth pathway of some kind? Some sort of sidewalk on the sea. Every valley will be exalted. And every mountain and hill will be made low. And the rough places plain. The prophets foretold. And that scriptures come to mind. You see, when you created the ocean, why wait for a boat? If you made the water, no need for a ferry. The Son of God strides across the sea as smoothly and confidently as if it were dry land. The liquid surface becomes for him as hard as a rock. The sea strider on the move, rescuing his beloved disciples. And there seems to be no way he makes a way. The king's highway, the Messiah's freeway, straight over the waves. All things serve him, Scripture tells us. All things work together for the good, for his own. Wind and waves, water and storm, chaos and crisis. All are his servants. This is our prayer for uh, both Jewish and Arab people at this time, is it not, in the Middle East, that God would use this. We knew it was going to get worse before it gets better. That's why we are premillennial, by the way. May God use this. We have missionaries in Galilee. We were just with them to see many saved, to see the gospel advance. All things do his bidding. Nothing acts without divine permission. As Sproul famously put it, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Psalm 93, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And Jesus is his son's name. And he walks on the water. You remember Sir Ian McKellen, well-known actor? I think he was Gandalf as well. But he was in the Da Vinci Code movie. And they interviewed him once. And they said, Sir McKellen, did not this Da Vinci movie at least open with a disclaimer defining it as fiction? I mean, this has been so controversial. This is really such an anti-Bible and such an uh, uh, anti-Christian sort of film and book, you know, the Da Vinci Code. Sir McKellen replied arrogantly, well, only if the Bible does the same. In other words, the Bible should begin with a disclaimer. And then he says, quote, I mean, come on, walking on water? To which, as 
Bible-believing Christians, we would reply, yes, Sir McKellen, in real history, in an actual place called Galilee, on an actual sea, my Lord walked on water. <laughs> and if you would repent and believe, you could come to know him as well. There's liberal critics, right? Who attack the Bible. They always are, are cooking up new ways to try and explain away miracles like this. First, there was a sandbank theory many years ago. Scholars tried to show the supposed presence and movement of sandbanks around the Jordan inflow. Wow, fascinating. Then there was the, uh, uh, the surf theory, that, that Jesus was merely wading through the surf near the hidden shore. It's just an optical illusion. And then, in 2006, Israeli and U.S. scientists teamed up together, first red flag, and uh, came up with this uh, uh, new scientific explanation for what happened that night on the Sea of Galilee. Extremely rare atmospheric conditions occurred, causing certain portions of the lake to freeze over. Interestingly, led by Professor Knopf, who's making these claims, same guy back in 92, 1992, said the part of the Red Sea was also a rare, strong wind that lowered the Red Sea just long enough to let the Israelites across. Prof Knopf, I hope his middle initials E. <laughs> e Knopf. Anyway, Prof Knopf. Now says he hopes critics will see he's an equal opportunity miracle buster. He's taken on Moses and Jesus. Friends, there's no way to get around the plain language of Scripture. Look at the text. Matthew says the boat was a long distance, verse 24. Many stadia away from the land, in other words. Mark adds in Mark 6, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And all three, Matthew, Mark, and John, explicitly tell us Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. These are Galilean fishermen. They knew the lake like the back of their hand. They didn't say, oh, there comes Jesus. Ice, the water must be icing over. Hey, boys, I forgot my fleece on this chilly day. Or, oh, there he is, those good old sandbanks. I'm glad there was a nice flow from the Jordan, you know, uh, shifting sands. No, they're shocked. They're terrified. Something supernatural is happening. You and I know why miracles like this are a favorite target of an unbelieving world. Because people know that if a man defies the laws of nature and walks on water like this, he must be God in the flesh, the Son of God, who demands you repent of your sin and you submit your life to him, but you aren't willing to do that. That's what drives people to such ridiculous explanations. The Old Testament makes clear the God of Israel, true and living Yahweh, was the only one who could command the sea and subject it under him. I read verses earlier. I have to add a few more. Isaiah 43. This is what Yahweh the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, and his name is Jesus. Psalm 77. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and ride. The very depths were convulsed. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. That's Jesus. Our kids used to have a song they would sing. Footprints on the water, footprints on the sea. Celebrating the sovereign son of God, the king of chaos. Do you hear what the, these uh, texts are declaring, what the psalmists were announcing? The great exodus of Israel out of Egypt could never have happened if their redeemer didn't rule the sea. The God who comes to us in our time of need and no ocean, sea, or chaos will ever stop him. So on this night in Galilee, Jesus walked where only God could walk. And at some point, right there in verse 26, as the disciples' weary eyes looked out they locked in on a figure moving in the distance a person a body a form that seemed to 
rise and fall with the waves, but never going under them, remaining upon them, standing above them. And Mark even adds a bizarre little detail here. You can go look it up later in the parallel in Mark 6, where it says Jesus was intending to pass by them. But for Jewish ears, this is theophany language. In the Old Testament, that's God showing up. It's Exodus 33, Sinai language, right? When God shows to Moses while he's in the cleft of the rock, the backside of his glory. It's Elijah language in 1 Kings 19, where God shows up with a depressed prophet and passes by. It's Job 9 language. Very striking. Listen to this in Job 9. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Wow. And his name is Jesus. He's brought me here. He's praying for me. He will come to me. Love the way one writer puts it. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, now passes by believers in Jesus of Nazareth. Walking on water to his disciples is a revealing of his glory that he shares with the Father and the compassion he extends to his followers. It's a divine epiphany that should cause the same effect once more to say, who is this? Who is this? Look at how the disciples respond. Verse 26. How will you and I respond? Will we receive this comfort? They failed to at first. Verse 26. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. They weren't comforted. They were spooked. The word here is they were troubled. They were disturbed. They were unsettled. They were frightened. They said he was a phantasma in the original. A phantom, a spirit of a deceased person. Amaklozi. As people say here, right? The Jewish Talmud describes a popular belief that the spirits of the night brought disasters at sea. Ever noticed? Sometimes our imaginary problems are worse than our real ones. Admit it. You've had those times. I know I have. Remember as a young Christian, I was afraid I had some disease and cancer in my body and I didn't want to tell my parents or anyone uh, for, I don't know, it must have been a year or two because of some thing I thought was growing on me. And eventually you get up the guts, you tell the doctor and he laughs in your face and he explains it in two minutes. He's like, I can't believe I spent all that time worried about this and it's nothing. Overactive imagination, wandering minds, instead of taking every thought, captive. Not letting fear and anxiety manufacture non-existent problems. Focus on today's real problems, not tomorrow's imaginary ones. Seek first the kingdom, Matthew 6. Tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. Are you not worth more than many sparrows? Consider the lilies of the field. Don't be anxious. Stop worrying. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. Look at that, verse 26. They screamed in terror. That's the same word for shrieking demons in the Gospels. Never forget, brothers and sisters, we serve a Christ who comes, a God of Advent, even as we enter into the Christmas season later this year. I know as our choir begins to prepare already. A God who delights to come, to visit us in the day of trouble, who will come again. I love the way Wearsby puts it. We're in the midst of this stormy world, toiling, seemingly ready to sink, but Jesus is in glory interceding for us. When the hour seems the darkest, he will come to us and we will reach the shore. Well, look at how Jesus ends and rushes to reassure them. What brings them to their senses? What ends their panic attack? It's the voice of the master. He spoke as no one spoke. 
You alone have the words of eternal life. Three best lines in the story, three choice phrases to support and uphold us in the toughest of times, like three legs of a sturdy old stool of English oak. (laughs) Three great pillars on a mighty building. Each of these could be three whole more sermons of their own. own. You wonder if Jesus had to raise his voice or shout here in verse 27. Immediately Jesus speaks to and here's the three things. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Friends, preaching courage without preaching Christ gives no hope and delivers no comfort. Notice, the I am of Jesus is surrounded on either side by the command for us to get our emotions under control. <laughs> Take courage. It's one word in the Greek. We can't, we can't do this in English. Cheer up. <laughs> courage, man. Be bold. Uh, the old English. Pluck up your spirits. Moses to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Jesus often in the Gospels. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Daughter, take courage. Your faith has healed you. Take courage, blind Bartimaeus. Christ is calling you, said the crowds. The disciples in the upper room, right before Calvary. Take courage. I, in this world, you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Is, friends, is there any mindset more needed in the Christian church today than this attitude of fortitude? Recovering godly courage amidst the chaos. Take courage and go me divine revelation, right? I am Yahweh. I walk in God's place. I speak with God's voice. I bear God's name. I am. And then third, and as a consequence, stop fearing. What better antidote is there to our fears than the presence of Christ, right? The voice of Christ. The word of Christ. What did Paul have to say to young Timothy in 2 Timothy? Paul's swan song, soon before he was martyred. Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power, love, a sound mind. And then he, that's at the beginning of the epistle. At the end, he says, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. And the twelve would need reminders time and again, as we'll see tonight with Peter. He brought me here. He's praying for me. He will come to me. I love the way one preacher sums it up. The great confidence of this passage is that you're never away from the authority, the knowledge, the protective care of the Savior. Never. The storm is never so severe. The night is never so black. And the boat is never so frail that He is not there. I'll close with this. William Cooper, some say Cowper, one of the greatest poets and hymn writers ever given to the church. We love at Antioch to sing as Christians have sung for centuries. God moves in mysterious ways. This rich portrayal of God's sovereignty amidst our trials. But what many don't know about William Cooper is he also battled with acute depression. He had nervous breakdowns. He even attempted suicide more than once, but largely through the love and encouragement of his pastor, John Newton. Cooper was sustained through his darkest times. And in those opening lines of this Famous hymn, we see that Cooper was upheld by this very miracle in the Gospels, this image of Christ as our sea strider, as Lord of the waters, as King of the chaos. Remember how Cooper put it? God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. He plants His footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that in your love you rebuke, you warn, you correct, and you comfort us. Forgive us as we look at tonight for our small Christ syndrome, for our unbelief. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we trust you. Help our distrust. Lord, we are growing in courage, but forgive us for our discouragement too often. And you are teaching us to deal with our our fears, but forgive us for our panic. We pray for any who do not know you here today, that they would realize that they have not yet bowed in worship as the disciples do at the climax of this story shortly after this. And after Peter is delivered from his sinking, they together declare, surely this is the Son of God. We pray for any here today that know not the Son of God. Boys, girls, men, women, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, Young or old, we pray that any who are lost would uh, be rescued from eternal perishing by encountering Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest rescue of all from their sins, and that we who know you would follow you more closely, would be ready to suffer for you more patiently, to endure our trials, to, to keep rowing at the oars more faithfully, knowing you see us, you sent us, you pray for us, you will come to us, and you Call us through your word. Your voice speaks to us by your spirit. You strengthen us to take courage, to not be afraid because it is I and because of who you are, the great I am. All is well. In our Savior's gracious name we pray. Amen.